On this episode of The Playbook, on this episode of The Playbook, I have Robbie Clark, founder and CEO of Sid Developments. He is an incredible serial entrepreneur who has purchased more residential properties in Canada than anyone else. And we're gonna talk about why he is just an average millionaire in America. Join me for all this and more on The Playbook. This is Entrepreneur's The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. Welcome to Entrepreneur's The Playbook, and I have an ultra entrepreneur, and I'm gonna tell you why in a minute. Robbie Clark, he is the CEO and founder of Sid Developments, and multiple other ventures as we're going to get into. Robbie, welcome to The Playbook. Thank you so much. Been looking forward to uh, coming on this. I appreciate you having me. Well, I'm going to start with your childhood. Uh, you grew up in America, but somehow ended up in Canada, <laughs> and, and which is kind of reversed from a lot of people that are here in America. Um, first of all, what, as a child, were you doing that created this entrepreneurial spirit uh, when you were young? You know, something I always credit to, there was a few things. Um, uh, my mom was a very optimistic person. She actually grew up in uh, in Broadway and opera. My dad was also in the Chicago opera as well, too. So they were very outgoing. Do you have uh, a good voice? Uh, not not on their level, right? I had a good amateur <laughs> voice. There were a couple of years where I Because of all I tried the skills sing, in the world, I would fit singing the lowest that I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't put it the uh, the lowest, but, you know, my my uh, level of competition in the family is pretty, High. pretty fierce. It's so. probably like academics in my family. It's yeah. Like, so you... Uh, uh, gotta be uh, send this guy to school in a different bus. You know. Yeah, if they, if they were doing academic, I was doing workplace for 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 the vocals. So yeah, but, <laughs> nice. yeah. but uh, no. So I mean, uh, my mom was always a very creative and, and positive person. So at a young age, I remember. So I was actually born in Chicago, then lived in Florida for four or five years, and she remarried a Canadian, which is why we wound up going to Canada. But even at a young age, at like four or five years old, I'd be in sports and she was always very positive, like, oh, you can do anything. And when I was six years old in, in Canada, I remember watching like Barney one time and she, you know, I was watching Barney. It was really cool back then. And I was like, I want to be on that show. And she's like, you can be on that show. And I'm like, cool. And, you know, I never was on that show. But, <laughs> you know, she was always very uh, positive and, and encouraging in, in anything I did. So at a young age, I always thought initially it started with sports. I'm like, you know, I'm going to play in the, the big leagues. And as, as far back as I can remember, no matter what I was doing, I always uh, had that mindset that I was um, uh, going to succeed in, in whatever it was I was focusing on at the time. I had a mom like that as well. And you did get into some childhood acting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, again, like I remember, you know, when, we, when I was 11 years old, I was going for uh, open call auditions before having an agent. And uh, my brother and I came down to the final two for Beauty and the Beast at Princess of Wales Theater uh, for the role of Chip. And at the time, I was like a little ADHD kid. He was a little more, uh, you know, focused and a bit older. So he wound up getting the role. I was number two. And from there, he got an agent. I got an agent. Uh, we had this Norbert Abrams, an incredible agent in Canada. We call him the Ari Gold of Canada. <laughs> and, uh, and so he, uh, he basically, you know, uh, helped give us guidance was very, um, you know, very focused on making sure you were the best you could be. Like you were off book, you were, you were getting everything. And from about 11 to 17 years old, I, I did more days on set than pretty much any, any actor in, in Canada. Uh, which was great. I did very well and made a bunch of uh, money at the time, like had made uh, seven figures, but my education lacked because of it as well, too. And so 17 to 19, I wound up going back to the States because my agent wanted me to uh, get into the U.S. side. I wanted to train. 
mixed martial arts and have my focus in different areas. So uh, I was partying and training out here, and then I wound up uh, basically spending all my money by the time I was uh, about 21 years old. What were you spending it on? Uh, clubs, training. You know, it was weird. Back then, I looked at, at money as um, like, okay, if I get this job, I'm going to make, you know, $2,000 a day. You know, and everything is equated to um, an hourly wage. So if I'd go to bottle service, my only perspective was acting, where I made a few hundred dollars an hour, let's say, right? So I'd be like, okay, well, this took me a couple hours to make. And that's kind of how I equated things. But I lost about, about 15, 16. I stopped caring about acting anymore. I was into, you know, women partying, things like that. And um, so. You could have been good friends. Yeah, yeah, probably. I, <laughs> I was friends with a lot of people back then. It's probably my problem. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then coming out here, that wasn't my focus. I actually was really into mixed martial arts for about six years. And I was out here training, you know, at uh, Eddie Bravo's 10th Planet Jiu Jitsu. This is like early 2000s, before the UFC was cool. And, uh, and, and Joe Rogan and guys like that. And that's actually what I wanted to do. But I had my agents and management on one end being like, no, there's no future. Like, what are you doing? And then on the other side, you know, I, I was half in, half out. And anything you're half out on, especially entertainment, the residual effect is, is, is not going to end well for you. So it carried me through for a few years from 15 when I lost my focus. But then at a certain point, if you're not, if you're not focused, that, that falls off. And the universe, you know, I like to say energy goes where revenue flows and, and vice versa. But, you know, the universe is, is not going to give you those things if you're not focused on it and there's other people that are. So it kind of uh, faded away from me uh, at that point. And that consistent, persistent pursuit that you're talking about, whether it be for acting, MMA, or entrepreneurship is essential to maintaining or growing wealth as well. Like you said, where the energy flows, the revenue goes. Yeah. And uh, when we're not consistent and persistent. Now, you and I share something in common. You know, in America, most people don't know that the average millionaire in America has been bankrupt twice. Now, I went bankrupt once, uh, but I did it big. You know, a lot of people lost a couple million dollars. I lost over a hundred million dollars in my bankruptcy. Uh, so I decided that should equal at least two bankruptcies. So it puts me on, <laughs> on average. Um, the lessons I learned though, from what I call the dummy tax that I paid by not paying attention to and giving attention to what I wanted to do was the critical catalyst to being and having the success I've had over the last 14 years. You obviously had learned lessons, you know, at a young age at 21, but you also had a second incident of losing everything at 27. Mm -hmm. What was the lessons you learned at 21 and then going through all the different trials and errors, what I call, you know, the propellers because it propels us to something better. Mm -hmm. That second time around at 27 seemed to do the trick. What was the difference in the lessons? Yeah, it was actually more, more recent than that. The first one was 21 was just a lack of financial education. I went bankrupt over just a relatively rich and young. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's small, small, uh, a small amount. Like I would never yeah. file for something like that. At 31, I had a, a really unfortunate uh, lawsuit with a very uh, close uh, person that, that I knew exactly and kind of nurtured. That's exactly what happened to me. And, and truthfully, if my position was 10 times worse than it was when I was 21, uh, you know, I had businesses, I had debt, and I had homes that I couldn't recoup on. So any normal person would have done See, once that. once again, we could have been good friends. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? <laughs> so you're t well, it wasn't 100 million at the time, but the but it, it was a very substantial amount. You know, it was a seven figures in the hole at that point, And it was like, how am I going to get out of this? And I, you know, realized I've always been a big believer on, on teams no matter what. Like, I live and die by the teams. My companies are successful or fail based on the team, not myself, right? So if you have people in there that shouldn't be there, that, you know, that's something that it really taught me. I... 
uh, right before, you know, I sensed something was happening and right before a lawsuit came down, I started like really focusing on what's going wrong in the operation. Why haven't I been able to scale this? Because I know I have a model that works. What pieces are, are not working? And it was very clear uh, at that point. And so what I, what I did is I just kind of doubled down on what I knew already worked and the loyal people around me. There was, you know, our, our, our president who wasn't even he didn't even get paid for six or seven months. He just stayed on because he knew he's like, look, I know how bad you got screwed. Everybody did. And we're like, we know we know this is going to work. So I had some loyal people around me and then brought in more uh, people and was just more more focused on uh, making sure that it worked. And, you know, you talk about early failures, I think, have been uh, a big success for me and not being academically, you know, um, I've read a tremendous amount from 24 on I read, but I had like six credits in high school and some of my friends that went to Richard Ivey School of Business and, and work with us now, like they'll be in a class. These guys are much smarter than me, but they'll be at the top 10 in their class out of 200 people, but they're still comparing themselves with the other 10. I've got nobody to compare myself with. When I was 11, 12, 13, I'm working with Will Ferrell, uh, you know, Julianne Moore, uh, you know, Woody Harrelson, uh, the Olsen twins, Wayne Gretzky, like the biggest people in the world. And I like to say, you know, familiarity breeds uh, confidence. It can breed resentment as well, too. But it, it, it also um, breeds a sense of confidence in yourself when you can be around these people and understand that they're normal human beings. So I never had a limiter on what I thought I could do. So when this happened again the second time, I, I put it on myself. I knew it was my mistake. I didn't blame other people. And I just I really focused down and was like, no, this this works. I just need to have the right team there. And it was a uh, I, I feel like I've grown, and I'm sure you did after years, like leaps and bounds from there. My my legal team is is uh, very good now. Uh, again, much better than me because I was doing things very loose without trust agreements and whatnot. Right. Um, but that helped all areas, like on the accounting side, everything. It's like, no, I need the best of everything. I need you guys telling me what's wrong. And I can be the motivator. I can do things, but I need really competent people around me. So Yeah, those lessons and the accountability is what separates you and why you are having the successes you're having now because – you know, as a close relationship of mine and getting into the lawsuit, my biggest mistake, and I usually don't talk about this because nobody has the familiarity of this part of it, is how much my ego was involved in that lawsuit, right? I, you know, as I stepped back from and took accountability of the lawsuit and said, what did I do to attract this to myself and what am I supposed to learn from it? For example, I call it the great chain of feeding. Right, I surrounded myself with a whole bunch of people that were bleeding me. 80% of my time was spent with people bleeding me instead of spending 80% of my time with the people feeding me. And I had some extraordinary people around me feeding me, you and me uh, the same way. But beyond that accountability, everybody else, they think they're doing you a favor by blame, shame, and justification. Oh, you, you know, this guy. And I got into the competitive nature of proving myself right instead of walking away, settling. And it cost me everything I owned was my ego. When you were in the lawsuit, did you have to work through the lessons of ego? Because, you know, someone who's a fighter, someone who's competitive, successful, it's very hard to take the pragmatic approach in a lawsuit and not bury yourself. Yeah, absolutely. This one, uh, and I've had other, you know, things come up since uh, smaller legal things. And this one actually is, is, is By the still... way, that means you're successful. The first time yeah. I got sued, my dad said, congratulations. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you finally have enough that somebody's going to sue you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny how that works. I think it's, yeah. you know, it's more common in the, in the, in the States, but, yeah. but the, no, um, yeah, the truth is, is it's still, it's coming to an end and, and everything we're fighting over is nothing. That's ultimately what happened because yeah. as soon as someone else uh, takes, takes control of things that doesn't have the experience to handle it, 
good luck, right? So and uh, and so you know we're we're essentially you know fighting over how much uh, debt I I hold on my end now. So there's nothing to fight over. So. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, that, that did come into play because the you know, person was obviously so close to me and, and I felt I'd done everything in the world. And I'm sure from their perspective, they, they felt that as well, too. Uh, my side's right, obviously. And, uh, <laughs> and so it was. It was more personal for that reason. I don't handle anything else that personally or, or really let it get to me in that way. In fact, if I had it, probably be uh, if I handled it the way I would normally handle something. Uh, now or, or, or someone else, it would probably already be over and I would have dealt with it uh, better. And how has the lesson of forgiveness played into this? You know, there's been, for me, a huge lesson that has catapulted my success since then because I could not get into a state or a mindset of forgiveness mm -hmm. and forgiving myself for all the things that I did to put myself into the situation, but also forgive the other people that, you know, as you said, you know, I have no need to be right now. Mm -hmm. And if I do, I cancel it. Uh, but I utilize forgiveness. Have you learned or practice forgiveness from this, or is it something still that you know you may explore later on? Yeah, it's it's gonna be something I have to because unfortunately, I mean, you could stick me in the desert with with nothing, and I'm gonna come out and I'll own the desert. You know what I mean? So, and, and <laughs> I love it's that. it's uh, like. <laughs> You know, you could dump all the money in the world in the desert and it would still redistribute itself to the same people. You know, you, then there's a lot of truth to that, right? And yeah. it, and it's, that's the thing with education as well, too, when you understand how business and, and money works. Like It's like, I know. Listen, you can take everything away from me and then pile on debt and I'm still going to come back and, no and I'll do it twice as fast. No doubt. And I bet, so, that I bet on. Yeah. And, right? and, you know, and, I, and, that, and that's kind of the thing. So from my end, uh, once it fizzles out, it, it's easier for me to do that from my end. On the other side, I'm, I'm not so sure, but it's something that I can't really... Um, I can't even approach it until it's uh, finalized because I've I've moved on and quite frankly where I was at there not not only have I jumped past that period of time but I'm I'm over 10x further than I than I was at that period so it's like uh, fighting over spilt milk at that point but um, you know I, I I've moved on in in many ways and in some ways I haven't which will need to be rectified at a, at a later point that's why we'll have you join into the whole group of people I mentioned earlier into the Meltzer mentorship, the mindset of uh, gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, yeah. Oh, yeah. and inspiration. We'll get, we'll get you there and the abundance will flow beyond belief. I don't doubt uh, it. Yeah. We'll get you there. But so now you come out of, you know, this great setback, other people see as a failure, separations, you know, pain, struggle. And yet you and I both share that confidence that look, you know, which by the way, you're not married yet. Uh, you, we ju actually just got married during oh, the pandemic. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys did get married. Okay, we did. even better because one of the hardest and most difficult things in a marriage is to be married to people like you and I. Uh, not just yeah. because of the way we look, but more <laughs> importantly, uh, because we have that confidence. See, a lot of times in marriage, there's this you know unspoken leverage about being afraid of, of losing half or I see married couples do it all the time, right? The, and, and when I first was in a different state of mind, when I wanted to, my wife was going to leave me because I was such an idiot. Uh, and she <laughs> like basically said, I'm leaving you because you're an idiot. Two years before I lost everything. And my initial reaction was good. I'll take half of everything, if not all. Right. Mm -hmm. It was all about the money. But the difficult thing is there's no that leverage because when you know, I tell my wife all the time and she gets mad at me, just take everything, yeah. right? If I'm not that bad, I'll start over. You know, you got my, can't have my kids, but like take all, yeah. I don't care. Take everything I own, mm -hmm. right? Like you said, I'll own the desert. Mm -hmm. I know that about myself. Uh, so coming out of the bankruptcy, this is a critical mindset, right? Losing everything, you're coming out, you gotta start over. 
for you, what was that initial? I, I made my first million two weeks right out of it. What was your mindset? Yeah, I definitely did not. Uh, so <laughs> at 21, I didn't have the mental fortitude. That's why I filed for bankruptcy in the, yeah. in the first part. I actually went to serving tables and, and then I was bartending for a while trying to figure it out. And the first book that really turned me on, I was reading sporadic things, but was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, what? And he just, he made it so simple to understand like the difference between an asset and a liability. And I took that and kind of ran with it. And um, so that's when I started. And that's when I was like, you know what? Everything I've ever done has been a topic. I got better at acting because I continued to act. I got better at, you know, uh, baseball because I went to the batting cages every single day. And I'm like, business has got to be the same. It's got to be a topic. That's all it is. So I've become an expert in this. Who's going to stop me? And I looked at all my friends in university. Most of them had stopped reading when they had graduated, things like that. And I'm like, I'm just going to obsess over this. And I was kind of doing a little singing at the time. And I've been with my wife, uh, you know, and we've been together 10 years now. So she's seen she, while I was serving. And, she's very and, patient. Yeah, I helped with everything. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so the um, uh, what I did is just start educating myself from there. And I, you know, I had a healthy vending company that didn't really go anywhere because uh, there's no margins in, in healthy products as great as they are. And uh, then I had um, uh, a landscaping company that's, that's still around. And I bought my first home, what was it, 24 or 25 when I bought my first property. And that kind of started it, but it was a building thing for me. It took me three years to educate and get that there. That's why I say now, it's like, well, I've been doing this 10 years. I mean, any, like, you know, uh, you're a master in the field that you work in. Like I had a luncheon with Grant Cardone a few years ago and he's an expert in Miami real estate. Yep. I'm an expert in Canadian real estate and I'm an expert in what I do. You the most so. residential properties or you've sold the most? Yeah, so yeah. no, and I don't sell, uh, I'm Good. not an agent, but yeah, 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 I, you know, the wealthiest people in the world, they own assets forever and they borrow against them and Tax create free. cash flow out of that. Yeah, Correct. so, but the, uh, but I buy more residential homes than, than anybody in Canada right now. Yeah, so it's kind of a, something that's a little more common here, but, and it took a while to build that machine. That's really been, you know, it takes a lifetime of work to become an overnight success. So <laughs> I've been doing it for nine years, but it's the past two and a half, three years when I got the, the right team and the bad apples out of the, out of the uh, organization that really worked. So we have a three-tiered system. We have the agents, which is the acquisition side. We have the property management, which is obviously managing the properties. And then we have the construction side. Uh, when I started construction, we initially took on a bunch of construction workers and realized that didn't work pretty quickly because uh, you can't control your overhead. And then we started operating say, like employees and overhead. I own a finishing construction business with my real estate business. <laughs> yeah. I learned fast. Yeah. Yeah. So we manage it. We operate like developers. So we have site supervisors, engineers, yeah. project managers, and then we manage, uh, you know, roughly 200 trades at any given time. And we're doing about 60, 70 sites at, uh, at any given time as well, too. And Canada has this anomaly. There's a lack of data in certain areas, but we are the, uh, you know, we have these high cap rate, low vacancy areas, which is kind of an anomaly in the States because most things, if they're high cap rate, they're, they're high vacancy or right. you're collecting your rent with a gun. And in, uh, in Canada, <laughs> in we're, cash. yeah, exactly. So, and a lot of people think Canadian real estate's expensive, but in the areas that we go to, uh, the median income is high and the prices are low. Like I'm not buying in Toronto. I'm yeah. buying in the areas that need it and they need that lift, but the median income is or already Mar Markham, there. Markham, right? That really rich place, Markham. Mar Mar yeah, Markham. So a lot of the suburbs there are- <laughs> My media guys are from Markham. I always are they? Yeah, them. yeah, Markham. Grew up yeah. rich and spoiled. Million plus for a single all family. Those, it's like Beverly Hills. I got all rich kids working for me. I want some grinders. Anybody from Minnesota? All right, good. We got Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, we got Minnesota, yeah. <laughs> but, the, uh, but no, so we, um, you know, uh, Canada also has the least homes per capita out of uh, any of the G seven countries so we have a a massive uh supply issue we don't have enough and now we just increase immigration to four hundred thousand uh people a year but we're only building two hundred thousand units right. and the total and how's vacancy, the short-term rentals as well off those residential properties is like america 
in the Airbnb VRBO side of it, has that increased the shortage as well? I'm not. It's definitely impacted things in, uh, in in Hollywood. I know we're paying more for our rentals while we're out here on Airbnb. It's crazy. Like yeah. Airbnb is just taking o- taking over, but not quite as much in the areas we're in. Um, we're we're more all long term rentals. Mm-hmm. What we're doing, Toronto for sure. It's the same. You get a lot of companies that'll lease properties and then Airbnb them or some own. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, more of a grind. More uh, there's a lot more work in, in Airbnbs, so we don't really we don't really do yeah. those because we're focused on the on the longer term. But the the main economics that that make it work for us again is just these high cap rate, low vacancy areas, and the massive immigration um, that we have coming into Canada. Because we we have four and a half percent vacancy around the country, three point two percent vacancy uh, in Ontario, and um, and and it's really much lower because we subsidize uh, rental housing in Canada for people who can't afford it, and there's long waiting lists in every every yeah. city for that. So, just a lot of factors that you know are similar to what you'd look for in the states, but we don't have as much access to data, which creates more opportunity for people who know uh, in, in the areas that we invest. And uh, it's, a, it's a smaller country. We're, we're larger in landmass, second largest landmass, but we're you know, 39th in population in the world, 34 million people. So. so how, you know, I think the business model straightforward has been done for years and years and years, not just in America, but in Canada. You know, it's a game that I've played since I've been 24 years old. Mm-hmm. But the one component that most people stop at it. And I always see when pain or struggle or resistance occurs, 90% of the people quit at that point. The minute there's some sort of, oh, this is too hard, I can't. And the point that that uh, occurs, when people initially try to get into the real estate game, the long-term hold game, you know, the refi game, the, you know, instead of the flip game, but even the flip game, this happens, is leveraging capital to purchase the properties. Yep. They just can't figure out you know, how do I buy properties with yeah. no money or yeah. credit or whatever else you had to do when you first started? See, once you get rolling, it gets much easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what advice do you give to people that are sitting there going, I get it, but I can't get a property. I can't find the right property. I don't have the financing to get the right property. Are those things that you're looking at teaching or is this something that is your secret sauce? Yeah, you know, right now, like on my Instagram, I'm, I'm literally just putting out free content and business advice that I do. I'm not even, I don't want to charge, not even because I think coaching is great and I recommend coaches to people who ask me sometimes, but me, it's almost like, you know, I feel like a lot of people hit goals in real estate that they're surprised they hit. And somebody who hits eight figures is like, okay, now I'm going to start teaching because they didn't even expect to hit that. And then they divert their focus into something else. And then you're like, you're kind of shying away from what you did here. Like I want to hit uh, a billion in holdings by the end of 2022. That's that's my goal, right? And so I'm going to put out content that I like and, and be out there because I think people need it, especially in the entertainment and sports uh, industry. Like there's a few people I, I mentor um, on purchases, former athletes, NFLers, things like that, yeah. that I do and I don't even talk about it. Um, and they'll message me and ask, answer whatever, because I'm like, look, I made a lot of money in acting and lost it all because I had no idea where to invest. And I see this uh, all the time with entertainers and athletes. So right now I'm just doing it um, for free and putting it out there. Maybe I'll start a, a private equity fund in the future, because although I'm in real estate, uh, a lot of my practices, you know, like the things that I believe in relate to all businesses. And, you know, I love marketing. Unfortunately, I'm not really in an industry that I need marketing for. But for people who, uh, you know, the problem is that everybody can have an excuse, right? Like I can have an excuse. Okay, cool. My credit was 420. Like, you know, that's a joke of all, you know what I mean? <laughs> when, when I was going through this and I had to use other people to sign on a dotted line just to, to just purchase more homes. And, you know, ultimately, if you're going to work with lenders and we work with a lot of private lenders on initial acquisitions, they got to know you know what you're doing. 
So who's your team? What's your experience? And what is your, um, what is your knowledge? You got to be able to talk about it and prove it. And it's not going to happen overnight. The first night, I, first year I bought one home. Second was, you know, a couple homes. And I was educating, educating more than I was practicing. But you got to do both. And then you're going to get better over time and then build uh, momentum from there, right? So, I mean, a lot of people, I see some people who will ask questions. Eventually, I'll just, you know, ignore them at times where they're asking a couple of good questions. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they keep asking shit. And you're like, listen, at a certain point, you just got to read and, and start doing this yourself. You're not going to get all the answers in 30 minutes. And it's going to take time because it's like you go to the batting cages for 30 minutes. So you're going to switch it 90 miles. No, you know, it's not going to happen. So you've got to you got to have that confidence in yourself that you can pull it off. And this is why, so one of the things I also tell people is to start small. Like, why did I stick to single families? We have apartment buildings as well too, but but I know everything about a single family or a duplex, triplex, inside and out. There's nothing you can show me that I don't know. And one of the biggest things that stops people is being discouraged, right? So if you get a problem that you can't solve, it gets very discouraging. And whenever you've been through something for the first time, there's going to be a lot of problems you've never seen before. So if you're starting on something smaller, it doesn't matter. You're going to get started sooner if it's a smaller project. You don't need to go after a 20 or 30, 40 unit building for your first one. Start on something small. Get that done because then you're less likely to be discouraged when you have a problem. And then you can kind of slowly graduate from there or just repeat what you did a thousand times over. Right. So. Right. And the relationships, you know, what I found is I scaled, you know, past 100 million in real estate way back when was that the relationships that to build, you know, having the right contractors, electricians, all the different supplies, you know, from case-based crown doors, even understanding the value in what you're doing and where there is value uh, in upgrading and, you know, whether you're renting or selling or flipping, whatever it was, commercial or residential. Now, one of the things that I have found, and I love uh, your mission, by the way, to hold over a billion dollars of property. I know you said over, right? You're not going to limit yourself. Over, no, 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 we're going. I always say over. Okay, good. <laughs> over a billion dollars worth of property by 2022 is that success breeds distraction. Uh, and you have experienced that at a young age. And it's not just drinking and, you know, clubs and that and girls, uh, those distractions. As you get older and you get married, now the distractions are your kids, other business opportunities because you're so capable and you have capital. See, capabilities and capabilities can be an equation for destruction. When you're very capable with capital, there's so many opportunities to make money. And you think, well, I've been really capable over here. I now should, you know, own an esports team, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. by the way, I'm the <laughs> founding investor in Toronto's team. A little plug for Overactive Media. Yeah. But when I did that, it wasn't my emotion and attention that I was giving. I was just giving my money and my name. Hmm. Right. I, I wasn't going to build the esports teams and do it. And that's where it is. How do you balance the enormous amount of opportunity that you have with the capability that you gained over all these years and the capital you have? How do you stay focused in on what you're good at and what you can make money at when there's so many things you can do? Yeah. And at this stage, I would definitely say access to capital more than actual capital because I don't keep anything in the accounts. <laughs> and that's, that's part of the reason for growth. But, but also... Um, Bezos didn't either, so you should be fine. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. That's a good, good one to go with. But the, uh, but you know, really I've always been in my head, I'm a serial entrepreneur. So there's always a million things I want to do. And, and my biggest thing is like I had said earlier, you know, energy goes where revenue flows. And I know that, um, if I get too distracted and try to start up too many companies, they're just going to fall by the wayside. Even ones that I have that I've, you know, moved over my attention, uh, you know, 
99% to SID developments, it's like, okay, well, those other ones are going to suffer if they don't have the right team. So I'm sure one of the things that you do, because you're, you're invested in a lot of different ventures, is make sure that the team is right for the job. Like, I, I run a company, Eat Fresh Meals, uh, where, you know, I've been with that company for years, but the executive team is much more experienced than me. So there's, you know, the weekly calls that I'm on, but, you know, uh, the guys who I'm running with helped uh, take a company or, or help mentor and take a company, Good Foods Public, help with the sale of Chef's Plate. And I've done a lot of big things in the industry and have more experience than I have years. And so it's, you know, I'm like, okay, why, why would I even try? And this is where my focus is needed. This is something I'm doing that nobody else in Canada is kind of doing it, you know, at this, this scale. And this is what needs my attention. So the way I've done that is just uh, force myself really to, to be focused on there and, and, uh, and, and stay uh, on this task of getting to places we need, whether it be with the correct banks and whatnot, till I'm at a comfortable level where it's like, okay, I'm not even needed here. Like we're almost day-to-day -day operations. I don't even know what, what's, I get reports at the end of the week. I've set it up that way where it's like, no, I want my team accountable. And even when I know that it'd be 5% more efficient if I was there full-time, I don't want to spend my full-time there because then I, that that's when I get, uh, my ADHD kicks in and I'm like, I'm bored. I don't want to do this anymore, right? Like, let me go try to do something else. It's, you know, my wife and I have been gone for two and a half months doing different experiences. And although I keep my schedule of reading the same in the morning, and uh, and my calls like I, I love my my weekly calls that we have for the reports and all that i don't try to get bogged down in the day-to-day -day, but that's helped me continue to focus on ideas that will work uh, at scale as opposed to you know starting up 40 other businesses which i'm sure i'm going to do uh, in the not too distant future but i know our 2021 goals i know our 2022 goals and i want to get those cemented because then from there everything else is uh like you said you, your access to capital and everything is relatively Easy. We gotta have one thing that really works. Yeah, before. the legs feed the lion. Not to use a hockey analogy from yeah, the yeah, a Miracle one. on Ice. Uh, one of the other speaking of films, right? I have a Jerry Maguire uh, philosophy, and when I say that, I mean so many people come up to me because of my experience of running Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment, and say, "Oh, you know, Jerry Maguire is my favorite sports film," and I always say, "Not a sports film." I'm like, yes, it was. I said, "No, it's a love story," but it happens. The love story happens with a backdrop in sports. And they use agentry as, you know, kind of the nuance of that backdrop. Uh, people like you and I, uh, who probably wanted to be professional athletes at one time, uh, <laughs> and also yes. you were in the entertainment business as well. And, you know, later on in life, I got into movies and currently a lot of TV podcasts and movies that I do. Um, but it's backdrop. And you touched on real quickly that you help out a lot of uh, celebrities and athletes and entertainers with their real estate aspirations by helping them but it seems like you have a keen eye on allowing things to fulfill you passionately by allowing it to be a backdrop, not your actual activity. So you don't see yourself acting anymore. You're not in the movies and you're, you're, you're not you know, fighting. You're not playing baseball. But how do you take the obvious passion you have for sports entertainment and use it as a backdrop in all your businesses? So it's funny, right? I've been, uh, like, I know you, you've mentored Dan Fleshman and, and been with him for a long time. So he's one of the guys that, that I looked at for a while. I was, I was kind of saying I was operating from a dungeon because I've been semi-famous before. And then, it, it's not. <laughs> My son it's says not, you're, you're a D-lister, dude. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. it, it's not fun. It's more intrusive than not being famous because people will come up to you and they'll be like, you know, where, where have I seen you from? What are, what are you, like, no, 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 tell me what show. No, 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 it's not that. No, 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 no. I've seen him. I've seen this guy. This guy's been on something. And you're sitting there and you're like, fuck, like, this is just, you know. It's so good. Oh, it's terrible. And so I'm like, you know, I, w I was kind of apprehensive about trying to get back out there. But I saw guys like, 
you know, uh, Dan Fleshman and and uh, really him, man. Like I, I yeah. and I don't like you know. Well, I I'm going to introduce him to you tonight. So sorry. Yeah, person, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Right yeah. Well, I met him once uh, a couple times before, but yeah. like, he's been. I've shot him a couple of Instagram messages. He's always been very, very care, uh, respectful with his time too. Mm -hmm. Like he's you know very. Just never he's see him well, off. man. He's yeah, yeah, well. you know, productivity, accessibility, and gratitude. If he doesn't, you call me. Yeah, and, and I'm <laughs> seeing that now, seeing his transition and like being a more public. It's like his voice should be out there because he's talking to people and he's getting them motivated in the things that they didn't even think they could do. And he doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need that to do, be successful. And that's what I realized too. Being in entertainment, it's like I've been, you know, semi-famous in Canada, not actually famous. You know, and like okay. I said, it's annoying. Well, let me just tell you what Jamie Foxx told me after any given Sunday. So, because he had, it was supposed to be P. Diddy playing that role, but he's from New York. And back then, the uh, CGI couldn't handle making someone throw a football. Okay. okay. So, we had to switch to Jamie Foxx because he could actually throw. Exactly. But after that movie, it was his first dramatic role. He's like, Dave, I'm just you famous. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, I go to a club and they're like, just you. And your wife's sitting there going, huh, what about me? No, just you. <laughs> so, you were just you famous in Canada. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even that famous, but like, you know, it's, um, but no, that, that's, I was actually sitting inside on a Friday night. I remember Ruben and I were watching, uh, uh, my wife, Ruben, uh, Spotify, we were watching Joe Rogan and Elon Musk. And yeah. I'm sitting there Smoking and I'm joint. like, yeah, they were, they were doing more than that, I think. But, <laughs> but I'm sitting there looking at Elon, who I've like the, the, so much admiration for and something I want to work on that I have in my, in my list with him. But, but, uh, but. I'm like, this is a Friday night, and I'm in here trying to laugh at whatever joke he says because I'm trying to be like, ha-ha, I'm relating to, to Elon. He's funny, right? And, and I'm like, that's so crazy that this guy, um, you know, captivates so many people by, by the things that he's doing. And some people, like, it's funny. I had one, I don't, you know, guy I looked up to when I was bartending. He was very successful, ran a, a massive uh, electrical company. And he, he was the first guy who told me, he's like, you know, Elon is very charismatic. That's why I like him. And this guy's like, reeks of charisma too. But yeah. I was like, that's an interesting, you know, you wouldn't say Elon's very charismatic, but then you think about it and you're like, no, everybody's tuning into him. So in that sense, he really is a charismatic guy. And I saw the kind strong of strong frequency, I call it. Yeah. And I think people in the future now, it's like you're either you're either going to be a developer or you're going to be a communicator. And I'm not a developer, I'm definitely a communicator. So if I, I was like, you know, if the only thing I'm doing is helping people that were in a similar position to me, whether it be you know, uh, people who, who don't have an education and have no money because I did that or we're in entertainment and had some money and then need to know what to do with it or, or sports or whatever. Even if it was just to get bigger to get that, that message out, I feel like that's kind of the good deed that I'm having. Cause like similar to you, I know, cause you've had it. I don't care about money. I really don't. Right. And, I get that. and, and I'm like, that's why I'll spend it. I'll make it. I'll do whatever. I really don't care about it, but I know that other people do. And it does hit a soft spot to me when I see people like struggling with certain things where it's like, ah, you know, either I've been there because I remember like, you know, counting pennies and at the end of a shift or something like that or being, you know, semi-famous, like I said, and people come in and see that I'm like busting a table and like, hey, weren't you on TV? That's very embarrassing. And, and it's uh, something that you have to get over. So I've had these different experiences at, at younger ages that's allowed me to not care about that stuff. I'll go hand out door hangers this day, you know, go door to door. I don't care. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and getting rid of that, getting more humility there, but then also understanding both sides of it, you know, because when you're on a high, like an athlete or an entertainer, the drop is big and it's quick. And then, you know, what are they going to do after there? Because the likelihood of you getting back on the horse in acting, unless you're 140%, it's not going to be there. Entertainment, sports, anything. 
So, you know, as guys like Fleshman seeing that, and it's only been the past few years, he's, he's gone back out to try and like really push a message. And this guy's, I saw what he was doing with the entertainers and I was like, maybe I can do like some cool stuff with a, you know, uh, uh, entertainers as well too. And little, little skits, see how that does. So really for me, it's about, uh, having fun. And, and that's kind of what, you know, got me back out there, so to speak. Yeah, it's really interesting. Trying to get semi-famous again, you know? <laughs> you will. You're, you're already uh, being on here. We're getting it, in, yeah. So yeah. wait till tonight with uh, Dan. But more importantly, you know, your relationship to money is interesting because one, you know it's a renewable resource. Then two, you go through the experience of money doesn't buy me love or happiness, shopping for things you don't need, pressing people you don't even like. Mm. Uh, and then you come to this freeing, I think it was Brad Lee that taught me years ago, right? money does not buy love or happiness, but it allows you to shop. And shopping, if you shop for the right things, can make you really happy. Mm -hmm. Like building a community and buying uh, community centers and, and education and healthcare and all the different things that, you know, today Belford uh, asked me to give money to someone that has brain cancer. And I was sitting there going, how nice is it I can just stroke, you know, a check to help, right? Yeah. And that means a lot to me instead of, you know, $20,000 a bottle service, you know, at, at the club, at, you know, in excess or whatever yeah. club it was, right? Yeah. In the old days. But now I, I, I shop for the right thing. So, so money, yeah. <laughs> money, money is important. With everything you've been through and you have so much more to do, uh, last question, what is your new relationship to money? Um, my relationship to, to money is... Um, uh, like I said, it's not not really an attachment. And even when I put out figures like, hey, I, you know, I'm going to have over a billion in holdings. I'm going to have billions in holdings. It's more more of kind of trying to push the boundaries and what I feel uh, is possible for myself. I don't think there's any limiter on anybody or anything like people like yourself, you know, w would agree with that. And I'm trying to uh, just show that that that's possible. I I think I'm a good candidate for somebody who's like, you don't really have any excuses, you know, because I've, I've been through all that. Or, Do you have no education? Cool. Me neither. Right. Have you been bankrupt? Cool. Me too. How's your credit? Mine's shit. You know, like, and it's getting better now. Right. But, <laughs> but like you have no excuses. So I like to take all the excuses out of the equation. Cause tell me what your problem is. And, and if you're actually focused and you have the education behind it, then you, then you can solve it. And money is the number one problem of everybody around the world. I haven't even got into my, you know, theories and whatnot on second and third world nations, which need a lot of work over the next, you know, generation and beyond. Um, you know, but but those are separate things. But in, in you know, you can only do so much at one time. And so my relationship with money is just trying to help uh, teach people. And that's all, all aspects. And I think that, you know, working with with influential people, especially in the entertainment world and, and sports world, uh, it's going to help reach those people who don't have the money, but also the people who do to do better with their uh, uh, money that they have just to to, to not live in financial scarcity. The last thing I'll say, Will Smith was on Oprah years ago and he said even before reading Rich Dad Poor Dad that he was always financially insecure and he made a ton of money. And um, you know, part of that was his lack of financial education. Even though you're making millions, well, how am I gonna get that income to support my lifestyle? I can have 10 million in the bank, but if it's a million a year to live or I've got five kids and I'm paying 200,000 a year on child support to each, I'm not gonna make it that long. So you've gotta be able to adapt and um, and learn those things. So my relationship to money is, uh, you know, I look at it as a, as a tool and I understand the, the pain that it caused me and causes a lot of people. So, you know, if I can do something to help educate people from my platform, then that's what I'm looking to do. Well, and I think you're doing a great job and I'm in full support of building your brand with you because your message is one that a lot of people need to hear and they can relate to you. Uh, 
your frequency is one that I think the masses understand. There's not a false pretense of success standing in front of cars, you know, that you don't own and houses that you only dream of and telling people what to do without actually going through the trials and tribulations that it takes. The dummy tax has been paid with Robbie Clark, serial entrepreneur, founder, CEO of Sid Development. And I will guarantee you right now, I'm betting on this kid, over a billion dollars, I promise you, by 2022. So if you want to learn from the best, learn from someone that's been through the trenches. Robbie, thanks for joining me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.